It's Friday, 31st of March, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Neil's out this week, but I'm pleased to say I'm joined by Chief U.S. Economist Paul Ashworth, who's fresh from publishing the Q2 U.S. Economic Outlook with the team. Hi, Paul. Hi, David. Coming up, we'll be hearing about bank vulnerabilities in Asia, as well as what aging populations mean for the long-term economic outlook. But I'd like to start with the near term. Paul, the S&P's back above where it was before Powell's testimony to Congress. That seems like a lifetime ago. Coverage is all about post-mortems around why SVB fell so quickly. Hearings have already started on what went wrong and who missed what. Is the crisis now over? And, and if so, how do you see its legacy? Uh, certainly the immediate crisis appears to be over simply because we don't have banks, either in the US or elsewhere, falling over. So that's a good thing. But yeah, I think it's still going to have a lingering impact, perhaps more of an insidious impact in terms of a tightening credit conditions. We know that money is still flowing out of the banks, both big and small, and into money market funds, which means that banks are going to be under pressure to rein in their lending. And that over the next few months and the course of even the next few years will mean a tightening in lending standards to households, businesses, and we think particularly to commercial real estate. When we talk about this, this, this tightening of lending conditions, how much of a drag do you think we are going to see? Well, that's difficult to put a number on it precisely. There's a lot of uncertainty over that exactly. But I mean, as a gauge, even before this crisis, we knew from something called the Federal Reserve Senior Loan Officer Survey that an elevated proportion of banks were already looking to tighten lending standards even before what happened to SVB, Signature, Silvergate, etc. So we can expect an even greater tightening above and beyond that. And certainly the sort of proportion of banks that we'd expect to be tightening now would be consistent with things like an outright contraction in business investment, certainly in capital equipment, and continuing drag on the housing market. And although it might not have as much of an impact on GDP, certainly a continued drag on capital values in commercial real estate. So you talk about the forces that will act to constrain credit in the wake of this turmoil. What about on the regulatory side? Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, is talking about the how reforms post-2008 are incomplete. There's already talk about strengthening bank oversight. Is that going to further this drag on, on credit? And if so, over what time period do you think that's going to happen? I mean, it's pretty clear at this stage that despite assurances from officials that banks were safe and had a lot more capital than in the run-up to the financial crisis and were much more closely regulated than before the financial crisis, that there are still problems in the banking system that need to be addressed in terms of regulation. So yes, I think possibly either we're not going to see tighter laws in terms of regulation, but at least the existing regulations are going to be applied a bit more closely. You know, we do know from the Federal Reserve that they did have concerns about SVB, for instance. But we're just slow on the uptake in terms of forcing SVB to take action. So I suspect regulators will want to take a more proactive approach to their regulation of banks, particularly small banks, and particularly small banks that have business models outside of the norm and maybe have balance sheets that have been growing very aggressively as well. Um, but above and beyond that, I think you'll also see smaller banks in particular tightening up their own behavior simply because they've seen how quickly depositors can flee. And so they obviously want to keep everything looking spick and span on the balance sheet to prevent that sort of flight. Because as we've seen 
in the digits of my age, it can happen very, very dramatically and very, very quickly. So there's little room to make a, a misstep here. And so I think banks themselves will be under pressure just from the fear of depositor flight to, to clean up their balance sheets. The key point with regard to your, to your Q2 outlook is that we thought that recession was, was going to come even before all of this turmoil and that this has only strengthened that conviction, right? Yes, that's correct. I mean, we already had the yield curve deeply inverted. We had the conference board's index of leading indicators contracting at a pace never seen outside a recession. And those are some of the key indicators that feed into our own proprietary recession trackers, which were suggesting the probability of a recession happening within three to six months was very, very high. Uh, and those sorts of indicators have very few false positives over the last 50 years even. So, you know, even despite the strong start to the year, we still expected to see a much weaker Q2, Q3, and Q4. And some of that appears to be playing out in terms of we're beginning to see signs of weakness in the high frequency spending data. And of course, next week is our first look at employment data for March. And then beyond that, we'll be getting the retail sales and industrial production data. So that'll give us a better read on exactly where the economy is and whether that strong start to the year has been sustained or whether, as we feared it might be, it was more to do with the unseasonably mild winter weather. How is this all going to feed back into in inflation? Can you talk through our inflation outlook as it stands now? Of course, yeah. I mean, inflation is obviously a lagging indicator, so it will take some time to feed through. But assuming that we see slower employment growth over the next couple of quarters and the unemployment rate rises, the key way in which this will feed through is in terms of less upward pressure on services inflation. And we already know with the US measures that we should get some drop back in the housing related components, but non-housing services in particular should benefit. And we should begin to see those inflation rates come down as labor market conditions ease, which have obviously been particularly tight over the last year or so, and as the unemployment rate rises. What does that mean in, in terms of Fed policy? Obviously, interest rate expectations have been on quite the journey over the past few weeks. Given all that's happened, how is the Fed going to play the May meeting and, and meetings beyond that? Well, I think there's still some uncertainty over the May meeting. I mean, it's possible that we won't see immediate weakness in the activity and employment data. And that inflation, as we've seen over the last few months, can prove to be unusually sticky. In which case, there's always the chance that the Fed will push ahead with another 25 basis point hike in May. I mean, we don't think that's the case, but it's obviously a pretty close decision. And we saw a couple of Fed officials this week suggesting that they would vote for another 25 basis point hike based on where on, on the data in front of them at the moment. But I think it's really beyond that where we see the Fed moving to the sidelines and then beginning to cut rates from probably in Q3, late Q3 or something, but possibly into Q4, which is still just about the market view. But you're right, certainly rate expectations have bounced back quite quite considerably over the last week or so. And just going back to your report, you wrote it with Andrew Hunter and Olivia Cross. It includes this, this striking quote from former Fed Chair Alan Greenspan about how sentiment towards the economic outlook tends to shift like the bursting of a dam. Can you talk through how that applies to the current environment? Yeah, I mean, of course, we know that 
when the Fed hikes interest rates as aggressively as it has done over the last year, that in past cycles, it has a tendency to break things. Now, that might be the SNL crisis, it might be the Asian currency crisis, it might be the Mexican peso crisis, it might be the collapse of the housing bubble, whatever it might be, eventually the Fed breaks something. And we don't have a smooth transition from euphoria to neutrality to gloom. What you tend to have, as the Greenspan quote talking about, is a building up of water against the dam, and then eventually the dam breaks. So, you know, for a while it can look as if interest rates aren't having as big an impact on the economy as we thought, which certainly for the first few weeks of this year was the way things appear to be going. But when the impact does come through, it tends to come through very suddenly and very dramatically. Now, you can argue that maybe what we've seen in terms of banks isn't that big shift from euphoria to gloom, but certainly it's a reminder that that probably is coming at some point in the not-too-distant future, given how aggressively we've had the Fed hiking rate going from zero almost to 5% in little more than 12 months. That was Paul Ashworth on the US Economic Outlook. Now... What does an aging population mean for your labour force? It's a question whose answer has massive implications for which economies will succeed and which will struggle in the coming decades. Mia Fahi's just completed a report for our global economics team, which looks at a set of countries that are going through this now to see what lessons can be learned for others. Lear's report gets to the heart of the question with some very surprising conclusions. She spoke recently with Vicky Redwood, our senior economic advisor, about her findings. And here's that conversation. It begins with Lear explaining which country she's had under the microscope. Yeah, so the countries we chose to look at, we identified them through a combination of both how aged they are already in terms of the total proportion of the population is already over 65, as well as how rapidly they've aged in the past few decades. And the countries that, that we've ended up looking at are Japan, Italy, Finland, Portugal and Greece as the five most aged. And then we've also looked at Hong Kong, Poland, Korea, Taiwan and Thailand which already quite aged, but have also been aging really rapidly in recent years. And that's, that group of countries, I think, is going to set sort of set scene for a series of pieces of work that we're, we're doing on what lessons we can learn from countries that have already aged a lot in terms of the implications for public finances, the shape of consumer spending, things like that. But in this yeah. particular piece of work, you've looked at the impact on the labour force. And obviously, you'd expect in a country that's got an ageing population that that would have other things equal a negative impact on the, the growth of the labour force. Is that what you yeah. have found? Yeah, well, it's actually really interesting because you'd think that it would have at least a proportional effect on, on the labour force, but that hasn't been the case. So in all these countries, um, in recent years, their working age population has been falling. But in almost every country, except for Thailand, the labour force has either grown in um, absolute terms, or it's fallen by far less than the working age population has. So what's the what's been behind this, this strength of the labour force? Right. So in these ageing countries, there's been a few key reasons that they've managed to maintain their labour force. And one of the really important ones has been increasing the female labour force. So especially in countries like Japan and Korea, in the past few decades, they've managed to increase their female labour force participation really significantly. And that's boosted their labour force, despite their falling working age population. And then another really important factor has been increasing the participation rates of people that are typically considered to be outside of the working age. So people that are 65 and over. 
And again, Japan has been a really key example of, of managing to increase those participation rates. Okay, that's really interesting. And presumably for some countries, immigration has played a, a bit of a role? Yeah, so that's a really important point because obviously these countries that we've been looking at haven't been the most successful in using immigration to offset the effects of aging on the labour force because they are by definition, the most aged countries. But there have been a handful of other countries, Australia and Singapore, come up as, as key examples that have managed to maintain really high levels of immigration, which has offset, if not falls in working age population, slowing growth. Okay. And I suppose an alternative course of action is to <clears throat> increase fertility rates. Yes. Yeah, so obviously that seems perhaps like the simple um, solution, really the reason that populations are aging in the first place is a combination of, of falling fertility and lengthening life expectancy. But there's been a handful of attempts in, in various countries to, to introduce a bunch of pronatalist policies. Singapore in the past decade or so has, has tried to implement a handful to no avail really. And it seems that once these demographic trends really take hold, they're quite difficult to reverse. So as much as Obviously, attempts to boost fertility are positive. They really haven't been behind any of the significant mitigations of these aging effects. Okay, so so you're saying that some of the key things are raising female participation, raising participation rates of of over sixty fives, and in some countries, immigration can yeah can help. So, what implications does all of this have for those countries that we are going to see? aging significantly over the next couple of decades. Are these all measures that we think that, that those countries can use effectively to try to mitigate the impacts of aging on their on their workforce workforces or are these factors that are actually not really open to them? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think they'll be really important for most countries, but obviously the degree to which any of these are viable really does vary between them. So countries that are already, I guess, historically quite open to immigration and more accepting on those fronts are more likely to, I guess, put off this aging in the first place. Um, whereas countries that are typically more closed off to immigration will have will have a harder time implementing policies to to avoid this. And actually, in terms of female participation, it's really countries where participation rates are low at the minute that are set to benefit the most. So as much as obviously countries like Finland and other Scandinavian countries that have managed to increase female participation rates significantly and they're the highest in the world at the minute. As much as that's been positive for their labour force in the past, that means that they have really little gains to make on that front going forward. Whereas again, countries like like Korea and other developing countries that have um, lower participation rates have a lot more room to gain on this front. And equally, again, with over 65 participation rates, I think this comes down a lot to cultural factors, but there will be some countries where that's easier to implement and others where it's harder. I mean, France comes to mind immediately given what's been going on in the recent news. You know, it's not it's not yeah, easy and straightforward in all countries to implement the kind of reforms that will encourage over 65 participation. Yeah, so it's, in some cases it will be a matter of overcoming sort of general reluctance and resistance to try to get those through. Okay, yeah. so for those countries where we do think that um, working age populations are going to be hit as countries age, so maybe the ones that are not so effective at implementing some of these reforms, yeah. is that then inevitably going to knock on to weaker GDP growth and sort of poorer long-term prospects for those countries? Do you know what? All else equal, that would be the case, but there, 
There's also potential, of course, for significant productivity growth in the coming years. And while we do expect productivity growth to pick up to some degree, again, that will vary significantly between countries. And kind of our baseline assumption really is that to sustain current levels of growth, especially in, in developed economies, e- even, even factoring in the increase in productivity growth that we're expecting, it would also kind of require implementing some of these changes to a certain extent. So yeah, I guess productivity growth will will help some of these countries that aren't as successful in implementing these changes, but it won't be enough to maintain the same amount of growth as we're seeing now. That was Leah Fahey speaking to Vicky Redwood about countering the impact of aging populations. Finally this week, here's an excerpt from an online client briefing held on Thursday, all about how Asia fits into the banking turmoil of recent weeks. You'll hear Siobhan Tandon, Tomasi De Silva, Julian Evans-Pritchard, and Marcel Tillian from across our Asia services all talking to Mark Williams about where the vulnerabilities lie. They cover everything from Indian bad loans to China as a safe haven to Japan's murky lending to Cayman-registered institutions. Forgiving the occasional iffy sound moment, it's a fascinating chat and it starts with Siobhan giving his overview. That the banking sector in the region remains in good health. Banks are very well capitalized. Profitability improved significantly last year. And we also think asset quality is sound. Non-performing loans as a share of total loans are still quite low. Banks in the region are also not reliant on foreign bank flows to finance any current account deficits. Most countries in the region actually run large current account surpluses. But that's not to say that there are no risks. In recent years, private credit as a share of nominal GDP has risen quite sharply in Thailand, Korea and Hong Kong. And usually such sharp expansions in credit can be accompanied by risks. So we're keeping a close eye there. We've also been keeping an eye on the loan loss absorption capacity of various banks in emerging Asia. So this is essentially the bank's ability to endure a loan loss rate to a certain point beyond which their capital levels fall below the regulatory minimum. So in absolute terms, on that count, banks can withstand a loan loss rate of about 9 to 10%. So that's reassuring. But when we compare that to other emerging markets in Latin America or emerging Europe, the loan loss rate absorption capacity there is much higher, around 14 to 15%. And within emerging Asia, if we look at individual countries, specifically Korea, Taiwan, and India have below regional levels of uh, loan loss absorption capacity. And in uh, speaking of loan loss c- absorption capacity, the regulators in Korea recently actually announced plans to raise capital adequacy requirements and loan loss reserve requirements in uh, at Korean banks from the second and third quarter. So that shows that regulators acknowledge that there are risks in the banking sector, but that actions should go a decent way to minimizing these risks in the ne- over the next year. So, yeah, I mean, we generally think the bank sectors are very healthy, but there are certain risks that we're keeping a close eye on. Great. Thank you very much, Shiran. I wanted to pick up what you were saying on India and bringing in Tomashi. So we've we've had this view for the last three years or so that India's banking sector, I guess, sort of it roots it early in the pandemic where we... Our view was that India's banking sector was a weak point in its economy and perhaps was a was a constraint on on um, how quickly it would be able to recover from the from the pandemic. Is there any sign recently of significant strain in the in the banking sector in India? And how how do you think about it? It's kind of interplay with with growth over the next year or two. 
Yeah, thanks for your question, Mark. The spillovers from the turmoil in the global banking system into India have been fairly limited so far. There has been only little movement in corporate bond spreads. Capital outflows over the past few weeks have been fairly small as well, and inner bank rates haven't really risen much either. So we don't see the interest rate risk and the mismanagement of that. As was the case with SVB, a worry in India, the rise in interest rates since last year hasn't been very steep compared to some other EMs. And more generally, Indian banks look good on the liability side of balance sheets. Loan to deposit ratio is low. And at the aggregate level, there is no reliance on wholesale funding from overseas. However, the weak spot, as we previously pointed out, is on the asset side. A high ratio of non-performing loans and low regulatory capital are both causes for concern in India. So the big unknown is whether these vulnerabilities will flare up. If they did, most banks in India are state-owned, which means they would probably be recapitalized fairly swiftly. But um, it could lead to a period of weak consumption and investment for the next two to three years or so. Julian, so in terms of the questions that we had in advance, I, I, there were two questions, essentially exactly the same question, which is about the how does banking stress affect China's economic prospects and through what channels? Can you take that one? Yeah, sure. So first of all, China's banking sector has relatively limited direct uh, exposures to, to foreign banks. Cross-border exposures are only about 1.5% of total bank assets. So the sort of channels through which there, there might be some contagion are more, more indirect or, or yeah, essentially the forwards two main categories, I think. The, the first is the export channel. Um, you know, if we do see continued strain in the banking sector in major developed markets, and as a result of that, credit conditions tighten, that's going to have an impact on the on the economic outlook there. And in fact, we already think the the, the tightening credit conditions that has already happened following the, the turmoil that we've seen already has softened the outlook a bit for, for the US and, and, and Eurozone. Um, so that's going to have a negative impact on China's exports to some extent, which are already struggling a bit now that the pandemic era boom in, in demand for Chinese goods is, is waning. The other key channel, I think, is just access to external financing for Chinese firms. Now, at an aggregate level, China doesn't have that much external debts. It's only around 15% of GDP. But that external debt is heavily concentrated in a few areas, the key one being in property development, where property developers are, in many cases, quite reliant on offshore bond issuance in order to, to, to finance themselves. And if we do have greater turmoil in the global banking sector, then access to that financing, at least at you know, affordable rates, will be negatively affected as well. So you know, those are the, the two main channels, although I think on balance, China is you know, the exposure of China to, to what's going on in Western banking systems is, is relatively small overall. Yes, Chinese property developers just can't cash a break, can they? It's them. One of the questions that we've had over the past couple of weeks that is kind of quite a striking one, I know that you've been asked this a couple of times, is about this idea of China emerging as a safe haven during the banking straits. Is there anything in that? What do you make of it? I think there is something in it to, to some degree. You know, as I said, China's exposures to what's happening in Western banking systems is, are relatively limited. China's a sort of large, fairly closed economy. And it's also in a very different stage in its economic cycle. It doesn't have the inflation problem that, that other economies have. It's not rushing to tighten financial conditions. 
Um, and as a result of that, you know, uh, and, and the, the sort of stage of, of its recovery, we think that you know Chinese equities, for example, are relatively well placed out over the coming year or so. So I can see some logic in thinking that, you know, China is relatively insulated from for what's going on and might be a, a sort of a safe haven in, in, in that regard. But at the same time, I think it's important that we don't overlook the fact that China's banking sector has its own problems. Now, those problems might not be linked to what's going on elsewhere, but they, they shouldn't be neglected either. Great. Thank you, Julian. So, Marcel, maybe you can just quickly give a an That's overview of, of where you see the risks for Japanese banks from banking stress. Yes, I, I think the big picture is that the Japanese banks obviously have been struggling with with low domestic lending rates and, and very compressed net interest margins at home. So they've they've made efforts to to expand their overseas lending and, and, and business activities in other countries. Uh, that has mostly been in the form of corporate loans, so loans to to, to foreign non financial corporates. And those have generally been of relatively low credit quality. So the average, the average rating of, of, of Japanese foreign loans at the non-financial firms is, is worse than at U.S. firms. So, so that exposes them to, to any, any increase in interest rates in, in major developed economies. But what, what has generally been overlooked is that they've also lent a lot of money to non-bank financial intermediaries. Some of this is to collateralize loan oblig obligations, which is a relatively murky credit product. I mean, the banks in general invest in the in the more senior tranches, so maybe the, the credit risk is not, not as big as you think, even though the, the underlying assets are, are leveraged loans, which are junk-rated companies that borrow at floating rates, so that they're, they're, they're probably the worst credit quality you can get in, in the corporate space. But the bigger problem is that a lot of this lending is just very opaque. So we, we don't really know where it's been going. We, we know that about 40% of lending has been going to the Cayman Islands. And the Cayman Islands are a big base for hedge funds. And there have been some episodes in the past where that has caused problems. So for, for example, when one big US hedge fund blew up in, in 2021, Nomura, one of the biggest Japanese banks, recorded a loss on that, on that exposure equivalent to, to about 100% of its annual profit. Now, those episodes are usually quite rare, but if if there was a, a massive meltdown in, in global markets and a lot of hedge funds would, would go bust as a result, then that, that kind of lending could blow up. And it, it's unfortunately very difficult to, qual to quantify, and it, it's flying under the radar of the, of the Japanese regulators. There's very little attention being paid to it by the Bank of Japan. So I think this is probably the, the biggest risk that is also very difficult to quantify. That was Marcel Thieliant and the Capital Economics Asia Gang talking regional bank vulnerabilities. You can watch the whole discussion on our website, capitaleconomics.com, and I'll link to that on the podcast page. But that's it for now. We'll be back after the Easter break with more macro insight. In the meantime, you can find all the analysis discussed here on our website, capitaleconomics.com. And for complete access plus powerful data tools, check out CE Advance, our premium platform. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to get future episodes automatically. But until next time, goodbye.